beautiful night. Pastor Mark, our wonderful senior pastor, is in Heath, Texas. They're having their, our, our church plant there is having their final monthly preview. And then next month, they start full time bringing God's word to Texas. So awesome. So I have a question for you. Have you ever traveled somewhere so far away, it puts you in a really different time zone? A few years ago, I traveled for work, and I went to Sydney, Australia. And I got there, and what my body, my body felt like it was 9 o'clock Saturday night. But in Australia, it was 2 o'clock Sunday afternoon. 17 hours difference. And it was July. July in Australia is their winter season. <clears throat> I'm a SoCal boy, born and raised. I've never had to wear a heavy jacket in July in my life. But in Australia, I'm bundled up. The reason I want us to think about time zones and time changes is because of the passage we're in today, Esther chapter 7. We've seen that the, the purpose of the book of Esther is to show us that God is in control of every circumstance, right? Sometimes it's easy to forget that time is one of the circumstances that God is in charge of. In fact, if we're honest, we're probably, we probably struggle most to yield our time to the Lord of all the things that we trust him with. I mean, it, when we pray, we really kind of prefer that God would answer our prayers on our schedule, not his. So if you ever struggle with being patient, if you ever feel pressured by time, Esther chapter 7 was written for you. Certainly was written for me. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for this glorious day in your house. And Lord, we come and when we open your word, we ask you to teach us. You be our teacher. Open our eyes to see things as we've never seen them before. Open our hearts so that we own your truth and it changes our lives, I pray. This is important, important information you're giving us today, life-changing information, and we pray, Father, we'll embrace it and own it through your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. While you're turning to Esther chapter 7, in case you missed the email from our prayer team, I wanted to give you a quick update on my health, and it's good news. Um, you probably know I was diagnosed with kidney cancer two years ago. I had a kidney removed. And at that time, they found four other little spots in my lungs that they started to watch. I, last year, one of those spots uh, got large enough, nine millimeters, that they decided to remove it. So I had surgery on my lung last year, and it was renal cell carcinoma. It was can kidney cancer that had spread to my lung. So they removed that. And then there were three other little spots they were suspicious of. So in January, they started treating me with immunotherapy. Not chemotherapy, but immunotherapy, high dose, IL-2. And I think I've shared with you before, high-dose IL-2 is, is amazing medicine, and it's really rough. It requires hospitalization, like up to a week, uh, every time I go in, and then months of recovering from the abundance of side effects. Well, last week, I got my CT scan to see whether or not I'm going in for another round of immunotherapy, probably would have been starting tomorrow. My CT scan came back like this. The three spots they're watching, one shrunk last time and is stable, so they're not even, they, that might not even be cancer. 
the largest one shrunk from nine millimeters to two millimeters. That's an 80% shrinkage. The third spot is gone. It's no longer there. And the, and the doctor said those glorious words. He said, um, I now show so little evidence of the disease, no further IL-2 is necessary. And it was like a stay of execution. <laughs> How do I thank you for praying for me? That's a result of your prayers. How do I thank the Lord for listening to you when you prayed on my behalf? Um, if you think of me later, please don't give up on me yet. I'm not quite healed yet, but uh, God is, is good. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's go to Esther chapter 7. This weighs 200 pounds. Manly. Before we read Esther 7, let's do a um, quick review of the six chapters we've looked at up till now. In chapter 1, Queen Vashti disobeys the king by not showing up at his banquet, and the king passes a law to dethrone Vashti. She's out. Chapter 2 gives us the Persian Empire version of our TV show called The Bachelor. If you've ever seen that. The king's men round up all the beautiful women they can find, and one by one they go on a date with the king, and Esther wins the rose, or the crown in this case. She becomes queen of Persia. And then Esther's cousin, Mordecai, overhears a plot to kill the king. So he tells Esther, Esther goes to the king in the name of Mordecai and reports it. They investigate, and the would-be assassins are executed. Chapter 3, there's an evil dude named Haman. He gets promoted to great power. And as uh, Pastor Mark said, uh, Mordecai acts like a punk and refuses to show Haman any respect whatsoever. Haman's hatred for Mordecai inspires him to trick the king into making a bulletproof law that will ex exterminate every Jew in the, in the empire, which is legalized murder of 15 million men, women, and children. In chapter 4, Mordecai wants Esther to go to the king to plead for her people. But there's a law that says if anybody goes to the king uninvited, that king can have that person executed unless he holds out his golden scepter and to receive the person. So Esther calls for all the Jews in Susa to pray for three days, fast and pray before she goes to the king. In chapter 5, Esther puts on her royal robes. When Pastor Chris was here two weeks ago, he showed us by Esther wearing her robes. She was wearing her confidence in the Lord, and she went before the king. The king welcomed her and said, what's on your mind? What's on your heart? And she said, I want you to come to a banquet. So she invited the king and that evil Haman to a private banquet. And at the banquet, she didn't plead her case. She said, I'd like you to come to a second banquet the next day. Meanwhile, Mordecai continues to irritate the heck out of Haman. So he goes to his family, and his wife and friends suggest they go to Home Depot and get a kit to build a gallows 50 cubits high. That's 75 feet high to hang, hang Mordecai on it. This pleases Haman, and his mood brightens considerably. Then we come to chapter 6 that our senior pastor covered so brilliantly last week. The king gets insomnia, and he orders his servants to read him the book of records, sort of a newspaper archive. The king discovers he never rewarded Mordecai for saving his life years before. 
While the king ponders how to honor Mordecai, Haman shows up to ask the king to execute Mordecai. But before Haman can speak, the king has a, has a question for Haman. The king says, hey, what should we do for the guy that the king really wants to honor? Of course, Haman assumes the king means him, so he says, well, king, I got, I got the perfect plan. Give that guy one of your robes that you've worn, give him your horse, and have one of your biggest nobles walk that guy through downtown Susa and shout to everybody, look what happens to the guy the king wants to honor. And the king goes, that's flippin' brilliant. Go do that for Mordecai. Wouldn't you love to see the look on his face? I mean, did his smile just freeze on his face? Haman obeys the king, and he parades Mordecai all the way through town. And then he has to go home after honoring the man that he can't wait to kill. But this time when he goes home to a support group, they say to him, if God is with Mordecai, Haman, your troubles are just beginning. Right about this time, before Haman can respond, the servants show up to take Haman to the queen's second banquet. We can probably imagine Haman, Haman isn't very hungry. So here's the outline for chapter 7. First, everybody's going to hang out for the first four verses. Then the words are going to hang in the air. And then just Haman is going to hang. <laughs> Let's read together. Uh, we'll take it a piece at a time. Let's read Esther chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. Everyone hangs out. We read uh, the New American Standard. If you would like, to, if you don't have a copy of that Bible, there's one in the chair in front of you, and if you need one at home, feel free to take it. It's yours. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day also as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king... Let my life be given me as my petition and my people, as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with annoyance to the king. So after three days of prayer and fasting, after risking her life to go to the king, after holding the first banquet for the king and Haman, now we have this second banquet, and Esther finally, finally tells the king about what the threat on her life and the lives of her people. So this passage raises the question that Pastor Chris brought up when we covered chapter 5. The question is, why did Esther wait so long to tell the king? To answer that question, let's turn back to Esther chapter 4, verse 4. Esther 4, verse 4. This is when Esther first learns about the death threat. Let's pay close attention to what happens to Esther. Esther 4.4. 4. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her about the decree, and the queen, see that? The queen writhed in great anguish. The queen had a huge emotional response. The queen heard the news. She was overcome by the fear and the horror of it. She felt excruciating sorrow and shock and fear. So remember, that's how she's feeling. Now Mordecai had raised Esther like a daughter. So Mordecai put parental pressure on Esther to say, hey, you go to the king, go plead, you go. 
this is your job, go plead for our lives. But Esther knew if she barged in on the king and she irritated him, he might execute her. Esther had to be thinking the king already got rid of his first queen because she made him mad. Why would the king hesitate to get rid of Esther, the second queen? I mean, Esther said it had been 30 days since the king called for her. Maybe the king's getting tired of her. Had to be thinking of that. Talk about a no-win scenario. If Esther does nothing, she and all her people die. If Esther takes action and goes to the king, she's very likely going to die, and that won't help her people either. When Pastor Mark so beautifully covered chapter 4, he showed us that this really was not a no-win situation. It just looked like a no-win situation. It wasn't hopeless. It just looked hopeless. My dear brothers and sisters, we have to learn something really, really important about our eyes. We have to learn something very important about our eyes. Our eyes can play tricks on us. We can't always trust what we see. We can't. If we think we see a hopeless situation, it's because our human eyes can't see the big picture. What's the big picture? The big picture is being able to see God at work. If we want to see what's really going on in our lives, if we really want to see the Lord working in our circumstances, we need to look at our situation with eyes of faith. This is exactly what Esther did when she called for a fast for three days from, from all the Jews in Susa. When Esther called for a fast, she was calling for prayer. Do we see the huge life lesson for you and me right here? Whenever you and I face a problem of any size, we need to take it to God before we act. Before we act. How often do you and I act first and pray later? And then we have to pray for God to clean up the mess we made by reacting before we prayed. The book of Esther is showing us there's a huge difference between reacting to a situation instead of responding to the situation. Let's look at the difference between reacting and responding. When we react, our emotions take over. We just let our emotions go, and our emotions control our thoughts. They control our words, and it controls our actions. We think, and we say, and we do things we later regret, right? We've all been there. We know what that's like. But a response is when we feel all those emotions. Esther felt everything. We feel the fear. We feel the, 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 the pressure. We feel all of that, but we don't let that rule us. We turn it over to God instead. This is not easy to do. It's not easy to do, but it's vital to do. This is exactly what Esther did. She's in anguish, but instead of reacting to how she felt and what she was thinking, she responded by turning that crisis over to God. Esther shows us that when you and I trust in the Lord, there is no such thing as a hopeless situation. Does it exist? Mordecai wanted Esther to go straight to the king. But you know what Esther knew? Esther knew, uh-uh, i got to start at the top. i got to go talk to the ruler of everything before I go to the ruler of Persia. So do we. The best way for you and I to respond to a big problem, take it to a bigger God, a God bigger than the problem. Do you want to see, would you like to see an absolutely amazing prayer 
from King David? Of course you do. First Chronicles 29.11. Look at this. First Chronicles 29.11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. You know those troubles? <laughs> you know those troubles you and I are dealing with today and probably are going to deal with tomorrow, the big scary things and the little annoying things? You know those troubles? Would you like victory over your circumstances? Do you really want victory? If you and I really want victory, we really need to take our problems to the God of victory. To the God of victory. Would you like to see an amazing revelation from Jeremiah the prophet? I know you do. Here it is. Jeremiah 32, 17. Oh, I love this. He says, ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm nothing. Nothing is too difficult for you. How would your life and my life change if we approached every situation knowing that nothing is too difficult for God? What if we did that? How would that affect our mood, our blood pressure, our witness for Christ, our joy, and our peace. Do you remember what our Savior told us? Let's look at Matthew 29, 26. And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things, all things are possible. So here's the challenge for you and I. Let's do more than just agree with this statement. Let's make this statement the reality of our lives. Let's live this truth that Jesus promised is true. So let's turn back to Esther chapter 7 now to answer the question I asked about an hour ago. <clears throat> Esther fasted and prayed for three days. She went to the king on his throne. She held a first banquet. Now she hold a, held a second ba banquet and finally told the king about the death threat. Why did she wait so long? Esther waited because she was trusting in the Lord who is in complete control of every circumstance, including time. Esther just changed her watch from Persian time to God's time zone. What time zone does God live in? Well, scriptures tell us that God does everything at the proper time. Proper time means at exactly the right time. God is never late. He's never early. He's always right on time. God sets his watch to the perfect time zone. So you and I have to decide today where we're going to live. Where do we want to live? In our time zone here in the Pacific or in God's perfect time zone? Esther was choosing to live according to God's time zone, not her own. Have you ever said something at the wrong time? How did that go over? Even a good word spoken at a bad time can bring disaster. We all know that's true because we've all done it. How many things would you and I like to go back in time and unsay? <laughs> I have a list. Have you ever wanted to say something to someone and you felt the Holy Spirit telling you to wait and you obeyed the Holy Spirit? This is what it was like for Esther. When Esther went to the king after three days of fasting and praying, we have to believe she was ready to tell the king what was going on, but she sensed the Lord telling her, wait, don't speak here in open court. 
her words might sound like she's questioning the king in front of his nobles and the advisors that sat around his throne. We've already seen how this king reacts when his queen embarrasses in front of the other princes and nobles. He, queen Vashti disappeared. So Esther felt the Lord telling her, don't speak in public, ask for a private setting. So when the king and Haman finally came to that first banquet, again, Esther had to be ready to plead her case. But again, she felt the Lord prompting her, wait one more day. Just wait one more day. 24 hours, that'd be a long time to wait to have that kind of conversation. But what happened in that extra day? What happened between the first banquet and the second banquet? Pastor Mark showed us this last week. After the first banquet, the king went home and he couldn't sleep. And that's how he found out that he had never honored Mordecai, who saved his life five years before. Talk about a perfect example of God's time zone. Maybe Mordecai wondered for five years, Lord, am I ever going to get rewarded for saving the king? And God's answer is, you absolutely will be rewarded at the right time, at the time when it will save your life. Remember, Haman was coming to ask to execute Mordecai. So I'll, I'll, God's saying, I'll reward you when it saves your life and helps save the life of your people. Past, look at Pastor Mark said last week. He totally, perfectly summarized this. Mark's been quoting me, so I get to quote him. Mark said, when you and I do right by our king, the Lord, it will be recorded and rewarded at God's time. If God has not rewarded for something, something for you, you yet, uh, don't worry. It's coming. It's coming. Oh, the waiting can be so uncomfortable, can't it? Do you sometimes feel like all of life is a waiting room with lousy magazines? All you do is move from problem to problem and wait to see how that's going to get figured out? Do you know why God has lousy magazines in his waiting room? You know why God has lousy magazines? He doesn't expect us to spend any time there. He doesn't want to just sitting there flipping pages, feeling anxious, waiting around. God wants us to trust his wisdom, trust his power, and trust his timing in every single circumstance we face. When you and I trust in the Lord, we have a very different waiting room experience. Want to see what waiting looks like when we're in God's time zone instead of ours? I know you do. Isaiah 40, 31. Though, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Does that describe you and me when we're waiting? What kind of waiter are you? What kind of waiter am I? Do we gain confidence in the Lord the longer he takes? Or do we get more frustrated because we're stuck in our time zone instead of his time zone? Esther sensed the Lord telling her to wait one more day. And by waiting that extra day, the king came to Esther's second banquet with nothing but gratitude, mad love for Mordecai and the Jews. What a perfect time. What a perfect time for Esther to now plead her case. Esther would have missed the perfect time if she had rushed to talk to the king according to how she felt. So here comes the tough question, and you're not going to like it. I promise you, you're not going to like this question. How many of us rush through our day instead of pray through our day? How many of us are addicted to hurrying? Addicted to hurrying. 
May I share with you one of my favorite quotes? This is from Dallas Willard. He writes, I have this on my computer screen. I read this a lot. Hurry is an attitude. It is not necessarily the same thing as speed. It's trusting in your speed. It comes from pride and trying to do too much. Good things do not come from being in a hurry. We need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry. God gives us speed to do things when speed's required, like moving quickly to stop a child from touching a hot stove. But you know what? Always hurrying is really close to always worrying. It's very close. When you're always in a hurry, you're kind of always in a worry. Queen Esther was not in a hurry. She was in prayer. Esther was not rushing. She was following God's leading. What do you and I do more of? Hurrying or praying? Rushing or following God's leading? Esther was determined to do whatever she could to save her life and the life of her people. So, because she was determined to do the best thing, she trusted the Lord to guide her and guide what she said and when she said it. <laughs> we should all pray. We should all pray for God to guide our timing and our talking. What a life changer that would be if God guide, please guide my timing and my talking. Let's look a little closer at Esther's spirit-led uh, words when she finally spoke to the king. Verse 4 of chapter 7, Esther said, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we'd only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Esther has learned a thing or two about Persian economics. She's been paying attention. She understands that if her people were actually sold as slaves, this could actually be a windfall for the king. The free services of 15 million Jews could actually add money to the king's treasury. But, but the destruction of her people, the destruction of her people would be an economic disaster for the empire. Haman promised to pay a whole lot of money when all the Jews were dead, but Haman's money would never make up for the loss of commerce and tribute taxes that the king collected from the Jews. So Esther, beautiful Esther, just told the king that someone wants to kill his queen, someone wants to destroy his hero, Mordecai, and someone wants to annihilate 15 million taxpayers. God gave these perfect words at the perfect time to Esther. I hope we see the value, all of us see the value of waiting for God's leading and timing before we open our mouths. Haman thought he had a bulletproof plan, didn't he? He thought he had a plan that couldn't fail to rid the kingdom of all the Jews. He launched this plan because of one guy, his hatred for Mordecai, but one person, Esther, led his, her people in prayer. And now Haman's bulletproof plan is getting shot full of holes. Haman is going down. You know what? You and I never, ever 
underestimate what God will do when you pray, when I pray. Never underestimate that. If you remember back in chapter 2, Esther chose not to tell anyone she was of Jewish descent. So Haman had no idea his decree to kill Mordecai and all the Jews, ultimate killing the queen of Persia. This was a pretty lousy oops moment for Haman. Which brings us to the second part of our outline, words hang in the air. Let's look at verses 5 and 6 of Esther chapter 7. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who would presume to do thus? Esther said, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. In this cozy little setting, just the three of us, three of them together, I imagine Esther didn't even have to point her finger. The king was sitting close enough to look right into his queen's eyes to see the truth. Then the king could just slide his gaze over to Haman's eyes and see the treachery. We don't know. We don't know what food Esther prepared for this banquet. But whatever it was, Haman's goose was cooked. <laughs> Haman falls from grace faster than that ball that drops in Times Square on New Year's Eve. Esther's words hang in the air as the king gets up and storms out into the garden as we're about to see as we come to the third part of our outline. Just Haman hangs, verses 7 to 10. The king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. You know Haman had been around the king long enough. He knew that walk. He knew that look in his eye. He knew the king was out for blood, and it was his blood. I just added all that. That's, now we're on to verse 8. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. The king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Herbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing in Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king's anger subsided. You know, out in the garden, we aren't told what's going on, but I can picture it. The king's putting the pieces together. And he's realizing how Haman played him for a fool to authorize a law that would kill the Jews, including Mordecai, his hero, and his own queen. So when he comes back inside, what does he find? He finds Haman draped all over his wife. You know, that at their banquet, they don't sit in chairs like we do. They have those reclined couches. And when he fell down to beg for his life, he fell on the sofa, and it looked bad when the king walked in. And he accuses Haman of assaulting his queen. And as those words are leaving his mouth, as the servants are ready with the sack, they cover Haman's face immediately. This meant Haman was now a condemned man. He was no longer worthy to see the king or be seen by the king. Haman was a dead man walking. Do you see how you and I are like Haman? Our sin makes us guilty before a holy and perfect God. Our sin 
covers us and makes us unworthy to be seen by God or to see God. Our sin brings the death sentence. Our sin makes us all dead men and dead women walking. But there's a huge difference, though, huge difference between us and Haman. Haman found no mercy from his king. But you and I, you and I, we can find overflowing mercy from the Lord our King. God sent his son, his son Jesus, to take the covering off of our head, a covering of sin, and put it on his own. Jesus died in our place. You know what this is like? This would be like King Ahasuerus coming back into the palace, Haman begging for his life, and the king saying, okay, instead of executing you, Haman, I'm going to take my own son, Artaxerxes, and execute him instead. What father would do that? What father would trade his son's innocent life for the life of the guilty, the obviously guilty? What father would do that? Only one father would do that, our Heavenly Father. He sent his, sent his son Jesus to die for me and to die for you. But God does not force us to accept his forgiveness. He lets us choose. And if we choose to accept his grace and forgiveness, if we choose to trust in Jesus, our reward is complete forgiveness, washed clean, and a home in eternity in heaven. If we choose not to trust in Jesus, either because we don't believe what the Bible says or we think we'll, we'll decide later, but then we never do, you know how that goes, then we're in the same condition as Haman. The covering, our sin is covering us before God. And we have to pay the penalty, which means we have to look forward to eternal death in hell. If you have not yet made that decision to trust Christ for forgiveness, then you're guilty and condemned before the Lord. But you can change your eternal destiny right where you're sitting. You can ask God to forgive you of your sins. You can ask Jesus to forgive you right now, and he will. If you have any questions about your standing with God, for your sake, please come up and talk to me at the end of the service. Haman came to his end on the gallows he built for Mordecai. Haman probably wasn't hanged with a rope. He was probably impaled on a stake. This was the ancient form of execution that later evolved into crucifixion. But we have to understand that Haman's downfall has nothing to do with karma or luck, or fate. It's the result of God working. God being in complete control of every circumstance, including time. Haman thought he had a bulletproof plan. Haman thought he was winning until suddenly and unexpectedly, he wasn't. Last week, Pastor Mark said this about that. Mark said, things unravel for us when sin catches up to us. What a huge warning to you and me, this statement and what we just read. If any of us are engaged in some kind of sin that we don't want to let go of, maybe we think we're getting away with it, suddenly and unexpectedly, just like in Haman's life, it will all come out into the open and take us down. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, promised us that this is true. Luke 8, 17. Jesus said, our Lord said, for nothing is hidden that will not become evident, 
nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. At the right time, at the perfect time, God brings everything out into the open. We should never, we should never try to hide or hold on to sin. That's a fool's game. It's a losing proposition. It brings destruction. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from every form of unrighteousness. Chris, if you want to come back up. In closing, we need to look at verse 10 one more time because we have a little bit of unfinished business in verse 10. Let's look at it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Okay, Haman is gone. So is the king's anger. They're all gone. But the problem remains. That decree to kill all the Jews has been written into Persian law, and no one can stop it, not even the king. In 11 months, 15 million men, women, and children will be executed. What's going to happen? Come back next week. Find out. But you and I this week have a decision. We have to decide how we're going to set our watches this week. Are we going to set it to our time zone or God's time zone? I challenge all of us this week, let's this week, you and I, let's make a conscious effort to try to live as best as we can in God's time zone all week until next Saturday. Whenever we find ourselves feeling pressured by time, let's make that a reminder to us to turn that matter over to God and trust in his perfect will, perfect plan, and perfect timing. Let's all try the best we can this week for a little less rushing and a little more praying. Let's see how that affects our mood this week and our blood pressure and our sleeping and our peace and our joy.